Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. I know some of you want to stand up and dance or after seeing our kids perform, but could we give our B Kids team another big round of applause? I mean, that was amazing. Okay? The hyperactive one right in front, that was mine. So <laughs> I was really, I was, a, I was a dad. I forgot I was preaching. I was, had my phone. I was like, come on! You know, so that was just so much fun. No, seriously, um, Pastor Steve, Patty. Um, Jody and everybody who volunteered for B Kids this week, thank you for what you do. Okay, what we do here is we don't just do events so that our kids can be occupied, so we as parents can have a little bit of time to ourselves. What we do is we believe and invest in the next generation. When Bethel says we believe in discipleship, we don't just think of the adults in the house. We believe all the way to the next generation. We want to see our young people encountering God at a very young age. And it is worth our time and energy that we invest in our young people, right? I'm so excited. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be able to come and preach today. Um, I just want to say thank you to Pastor James. Pastor James, I know you're watching. You're on vacation. You're not supposed to be doing much more. They're just having fun and resting, all right? But thank you for the opportunity you've given us to be able to share today, and I am excited to come with the Word. Are you excited to hear the Word today? Okay, well, great. Um, if you have your Bibles, please do turn there to Isaiah chapter 2. Okay, Isaiah chapter 2. Um, they gave me a hard passage to preach on today, so it's going to be very interesting to see how we'll do. Okay, while you're turning to Isaiah chapter 2, allow me to explain what we're doing. If you join us for the first time, you're watching us online or on Fox, or you've attended here for the very first time, we're on a series called Clean House. Pastor James last week had an amazing word where he spoke from Exodus on how God is trying to get our attention. He's trying to bring us to holy ground so that he could set us apart and send, him, send us to be salt and light to the world. And so I have the privilege today to speak from Isaiah chapter 2 on the idea of clean house. God is serious about us being salt and light to the world, and the way he does this is he actually affects and impacts the church first. He calls us first and invites us to clean house. Okay, when I thought of the theme, uh, the theme clean house, you know what came to mind for me? Um, a lady named Marie Kondo. Okay, how do you know, have heard of her name? Or the Marie method. Okay, if you haven't, uh, I have a photo there. Um, she, she is this petite Japanese woman who wrote a book in 2011 called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. So that was back in 2011, except that Netflix did a series on her back in 2019, two years ago, um, and she became a global phenomenon. Okay, and they, they talked about the KonMari method. Basically, she brings these Japanese minimalist perspectives and principles um, into our world, and she challenges us to look at our world and ask ourselves the question, do I really need this? And she wants you to hold every little thing that you have in your house and ask yourself, does this spark joy? And if the answer is yes, then you keep it. If the answer is no, then you dispose of it. And, you know, just if you watch the series, how many of you have watched the series? You've actually taken the time to watch the series. Oh, a good number of us here. Well, if you watch the series, what's interesting is you realize so many people get emotionally attached to the things that they have. 
Okay, and, and, and what happens is uh, she has you pile all of your things in one place, and one by one, and she starts with clothes, because that's the easiest one. She works her way to the most sentimental things. And what she has you do is you go through it one by one, and as you watch the show, you're watching it, and you go, I don't know about you, but you become very judgmental, because you look at people and you go, I can't believe you kept that, right? And, and you're like, man, look, 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 watch her, watch her. She doesn't want to give that away, right? And you, you really get involved in this process, okay? And I thought about it, and because I knew I was preaching, you know what I did? I kind of got a little convicted, and so I went and I cleaned my garage. And um, I realized there was just so much stuff there that um, because I just don't pay attention to it long enough, you know, eventually it just compiles, it's, it just piles up there, and I was like, this does not spark joy. Why do I still have it, right? And so I kind of cleaned my garage. I'm not yet done yet. My cars can't get in yet, okay? So... That's one of the things I learned here. Like, I used to wonder when I first moved here five years ago, I go, they have garages with doors. This is something we don't have in the Philippine context, but I'm like, but why do their cars stay outside the garage? I since understood, all right? So don't worry, I get you now. When we moved here in 2016, we moved, we packed our life into 15 boxes and moved. If we were to move again, it will not fit in 15 boxes, okay? So I feel it. How of you here, if you were to admit, you kind of need a Marie Kondo to come and help you with your closet, with your garage, with rooms in your house? Can I, can I just, I know I'll need a little bit of help. Okay, I know I need help. Okay, now, guess what? God was looking at the house of Judah, and he said they need a clean house. And so he didn't send Marie Kondo. What he did is he, he sent a prophet named Isaiah. And he called Isaiah to call out all of the things that the Israel had filled our house with, which was keeping them to being effective. And that's where we're at right now, Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 5, read all the way up to verse 8. Allow me to read God's word. Isaiah chapter 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. Let's all bow our heads, take a moment, and pray. Heavenly Father, we dedicate ourselves afresh to you. Even as we were singing earlier, Lord, we surrender. We surrender to you. We surrender to your word. Your word is like a sharp sword that cuts us to the heart and is able to divide between our soul and our spirits. And I pray that it would do that for us today and that we would respond so that it would bring us life life to the full. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so this is going to be a little bit of an interesting heavy word, so I hope you're ready for it, okay? Because the context here was Isaiah had to speak to the house of Judah. At that time, Israel had broken up into two nations. The, um, the first 10 tribes, they called Israel, and the last two tribes where um, Judah is called um, and where Jerusalem was found, um, that's the second nation, and they call that Judah. And so um, Isaiah was called by God to prophesy over Judah. 
And for four, the reign of four kings, he ministered to Judah. What was interesting was if you study, if you love your Bible and you like studying Scripture, you'll realize that God told Isaiah, the more you talk to them about the fact that they do not have a clean house, the more they will not listen to you. Can you imagine ministering for 40, over a period of four kings, knowing that they will not listen to him? I think about that. So um, I hope we do better than the house of Judah, right? I kept praying as I was praying, Lord, help me. I want to be able to respond better than that, okay? So what was happening here? Well, it begins, we began in verse 5, and it, it's interesting there because there, it begins, we, where we begin at least, is an invitation. Oh, house of Jacob, I think it's appropriate. They call Jacob a house. They call Judah a house, so as we talk about clean house. Okay, oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Here we see an invitation. We see God asking Judah to reconsider and to come, really to come back to him and to walk in the light of the Lord. You know, it's possible to live in other lights. It's possible to light your own path. It's possible to try to go about life in darkness, right? And so here we see um, Isaiah right on the onset inviting them, come, come, walk with God again. He had just told them a promise, if you read verse 1 to verse 4, which we won't have time for. But he was talking about a promise, a future day where God will bring absolute peace and there will no longer be wars. Because at that time, Judah and Israel were kind of at war um, with each other, and the neighboring um, nations were always trying to attack them. And so he had just promised, don't worry, our Lord will bring about peace eventually in the latter days. So while you're waiting for that to come, come, walk in the light of the Lord. So there was an invitation. Why was this invitation presented? Well, we see that in verse 6. The reason the invitation was presented was in verse 6, and it shifts here, so you might get confused. I got confused when I was initially reading it. For you have rejected your people. So the you here shifts. It goes from the house of Israel, and Isaiah speaking to the house of Israel. Now Isaiah shifts, and he's now talking to God. And he says there, for you, God, have rejected the house of of Jacob. Why did God reject him? And it's something for us, interesting for us to know because it'll affect the way we approach our life every day. Well, in verse 6, he explains why. Here's the reasons. First, because they're full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Now, Israel, as a people, one of the distinguishing factors about them is that they're supposed to be God's chosen people. Right? Some, of you, some of us understand that. God called them to be set apart. And here we see that Isaiah was saying, you no longer are set apart. You actually do what your neighbors are doing. You look like your neighbors now. So I can't help but reject you because you're no longer living the set-apart life that I've asked for you, for you to do. You know, Dave Ramsey here, we do financial peace. You know, he challenges us. If we're going to live like nobody else, we have to live like nobody else, right? However, living like nobody else is kind of sad because everybody else is doing, doing this. I got to do this too. And the, the, the temptation, the, the invitation, the option to do like everybody else is just so easy to compromise in, especially if everybody else is doing it and you're the only one that isn't. Right? But they were, they were being rejected because they were making 
pagan alliances. And they were doing practices that their neighbors were doing. So really, their house was full. Their house was full of relationships. In verse 7, we see there that their land was full. Their land was full of what? Silver, gold, treasures. Their land was full of economic prosperity. Now, we would look at that and go, that's a good thing, right? Yes, except if that means you no longer need to obey your God, the God you serve, because now you can afford the things you need by yourself. So the house of, Israel, uh, the house of Jacob was full of treasure and didn't feel the need to depend on God on a daily basis anymore. So different from the time that they were at the desert where they had to rely on God for manna every day. Okay, what else? We see there that their land was filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Horses and chariots at the time were pictures of military strength. And here we see a picture that the king of Judah had decided to invest on military strength so that they could maintain and build security for them as a people, because they kept getting attacked. What's interesting is that was hill country, and horses and chariots didn't really help. However, their neighbors had it, so they needed to have them too. You see, the house of Judah was full. Verse 8 tells us what they were ultimately full with. The house of Judah was full of idols. That's what it says in verse 8, right? Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the works of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Their house was full of idols. Now, we today in modern days, we look at that and we go, wow, can't believe they did that. I grew up in a nation where there are still idols. I don't see much idols here, you know, physical images that people actually bow down to. That doesn't happen here much when I look around. Okay, but what's interesting is when God talks about idols, He doesn't just talk about the shape of a physical thing that people bow down to. He talks about something much bigger than that. What is an idol? An idol is anything that takes the place of God. If you're taking down notes, that's one of the most important things that you need to understand today. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life. Okay, um, Tim Keller, author of the book Counterfeit Gods, actually um, had a really good description of what an idol was. Can I have that slide? I'll just read it from there. Um, Pastor Tim Keller, this is what he said. An idol is anything more important to you than God. It is anything that absorbs your heart and your imaginations more than God. Okay? It is anything you seek to give you what only God can and should be the source that you have, can give, okay? And it's anything that is so central, it is so essential to your life that um, should you lose it, your life would feel like it's hardly worth living. But stop. Read it a little bit more. Read it slowly. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life, okay? This is a big deal. It was a really big deal to God, which is why he sent Isaiah to call it out in the house of Jacob. 
Why is it a big deal? Well, because it breaks the first commandment. If you go to Exodus chapter 20, when the Ten Commandments were given, many of us know about the Ten Commandments. And we know the important, you know, like, oh, don't murder. Uh, you know, there's, there's all of these things in the Ten Commandments that we remember. Most of us forget the first one, the first commandment. The first commandment is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods besides me. One of my friends says, the first commandment is the first commandment because it is the first commandment. That's profound, right? I'll say that again. The first commandment is the first commandment because it is the first commandment. You know, in order for you to break any of the other commandments, you have to, you have to first break the first one. That order is important. The original temptation in the Garden of Eden was this, the serpent whispered, you can be like God. And to this day, that is in us, a, a desire to either try to take God's place or find things to take God's place in us. Man, I think about this. I think about this description and I go, does this apply to me? Well, does it apply to today? Well, this is Old Testament. You're reading from the Old Testament. This doesn't apply today. Jesus has come. Well, Romans, the Apostle Paul presents the gospel that we all love and believe. If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. However, he explains in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 25, uh, it's on the screen so you can follow along with me. It says there that for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks for him. It's possible to think I love God and I follow God, but actually not honor him with the way we live, right? Because they ended up becoming futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened and then they were claiming to be wise. Instead, they became like fools. Why? Because they exchanged. Here we go. Something takes the place. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so here we see the idea of idolatry being imagery, physical things. But also, later on in verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God who God is, what God can do, things that only God should do for us. And they exchanged it for a lie. And they instead worshipped and served the creator, uh, sorry, the creature rather than the creator. Do you worship and serve created things rather than the creator? Now, the invitation on us was, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And I think, just like Marie Kondo, it's the idea there, like, man, I probably need a little bit of help. If somebody like her comes in, I probably might find things in my, heart, in my house that I can get rid of. I had to look at this passage, and I hope, and I invite all of us to look at this passage and not think of our Spouse, not think of our children, not think of our office mate and go, this is absolutely true for them. They better be here. I wish I invited them this week because they, you know, they need to hear this. When I read this, the first thing I thought of was, what about me? Their house was full of idols and they didn't know it. Is it possible my heart is full of idols, and I didn't see it? 
Is it possible, like, if I were to walk in the light of the Lord, I might actually see things in the depths of my heart that I do not want to see? My heart was full of idols. And as I allowed the Word of God to expose my heart, man, you don't want to go deep in there. I didn't want to go deep in there. I just wanted to move on and sing nice songs. But the Lord that we serve cares deeply for me, so deeply. He loves me so much, He does not want to leave me the way I am. He loves me so much, He wants to free me from the things that I don't want to look at. He wants to empty rooms in my heart so He can fill it with things He wants to give me. But I need to go through this process. I need to allow Him to let His light shine and allow a Marie Kondo-type Holy Spirit to come and point out to me the things I do not want to give up. Whew. You know how, Israel, how the house of Jacob, you know how Judah relied on the relationships of their, of his na- of their neighbors and practiced um, pagan pro- practices? The idea of their house is full of relationships. I thought about that, and I immediately go, what about me? You know what I remembered? I remember when I was a new believer, um, Pastor Bryson was talking about how I got saved at the age of 15. When I was 16 years old, I was part of a small group, and we do small groups here, and I love it, okay? And I loved coming to small group. I loved coming to church because I could meet my small group, and every chance I got, I would go and see and be part of my small group. We all went to the same camp together. This is the youth camp I got saved in. And so every week when I'd see them, I was like, man, you guys, let's walk together. Let's, let's serve in church together. Let's, let's pray and read the Bible together. But the school year hit, and as typically happens when students have now other responsibilities to do, the people in my small group stopped going to church because they got busy. You know what was interesting? I stopped coming to church too. All of a sudden, church became more kind of boring. There was nothing to look forward to anymore. I didn't like coming to service. I didn't need to hear the word. You know why? It turns out, if I were honest, I didn't come to church for Jesus. I came to church for my friends, my Christian friends. They helped me live a better life because, man, when we were together, we would hold each other accountable and we would make sure we don't do certain things and we would do certain things instead. But I was in church not for Jesus. I was in church for friends. And when my friends went, I had no need for Jesus. You see, my friends were at the time my functional saviors. When my friends were looking for me, I felt okay. When my friends were there, I felt I belonged. When my friends were worshiping, I had the energy and the excitement to sing as well. But it wasn't Jesus I was singing to. I was singing to the reality that I could now be part of something better, bigger, something more than myself. And as a person who grew up in a single family home who had a really hard time struggling with relationships and building friendships and all that, this was heaven for me. And how you know relationships are good? I hope you build covenant friendships here in church who will walk with you for the rest of your life. But how you know that is not God? 
You know, idolatry is when good things, even good things as people, friends in church, become ultimate things. And my friends became an ultimate thing for me. So when they left, God had nothing else to offer. But we know that's not true. And I'm glad a friend of mine in church came to me and looked at me and realized I was kind of being iffy. Like there would be weeks I would show up and weeks I wouldn't show up. And she challenged me. She looked me in the eye and she goes, Carlos, at what point will your faith be more about you and Jesus than you and your friends? And I was gobsmacked. I was offended that she would dare call out my idol. I'm glad she did. Because that day I wanted to prove her wrong. And so I went to church and I said, I am here for God. Not my friends. And when I did that, something shifted. Wrong motives. I was trying to prove her wrong. But guess what? God will take it. And boy, did God meet me. Oh, you know how Judah was full of treasure? You know, I was raised by a single mom, so we were raised in a home where if we had, we had. If we didn't, wait. We'll have it eventually. In the meantime, live with what you have. And I watched her live her life tithing every time she had a paycheck, which isn't often. And I would go, why are you giving that to church when you should be buying me pants? You know, so I remember thinking things like that. And then I got saved, and I was like, oh, you know, you're supposed to give, give your money back to God. It was easy for me to give my allowance to God because my allowance came from my mom. It wasn't really my money. The first time I got my first paycheck from my first job, where I worked 15 days straight before I could get that, and I didn't have that much money between paychecks. You all remember that day where your first paycheck, you weren't sure it was going to make it? And I only had enough, and when I got my first paycheck, I was so proud. This was my blood, sweat, and tears. Boy, did I work hard to make this, and it wasn't much, but it was mine. And then I went to church, and then a pastor like Bryson came up and said, let's honor God with our giving. Oh. <laughs> okay, God, you know where I'm at. You know the kind of things I need to pay for right now. <sighs> Can we talk about this? Can we? When I have more, I'll give it. Right now, it's barely enough. And then, you know, one of those days, the pastor said, man, if you can't God, give God 10% when you have $10, you will not give God 10% when you have 100 And I was like, ouch. You know what was, what was getting hurt? There was something in my house. There was something in my heart that I was keeping in the dark that I was not saying out loud, and I was in church. What was it? My money made me feel I was somebody. I got promoted within a four, four months of my first job. Ooh, you know how that made me feel? Ooh, I am somebody. You know, when I applied for that job, I asked, you know how the, they ask you, how much do you think you want to get paid if you get this job, right? So 
I was being, you know, really, what was the word? What's the word in English? Um, I was putting myself out there, so I asked for more than I knew they were going to pay. They hired me for more than that. And I was like, ooh, wow. And all of these things were building something, an identity that when the idea of giving something to God, my money, my hard-earned, my money, I worked for that. When I was going to give it to God, I couldn't. My money mastered me. I did not master my money. And at the time, I realized I served my money. Because when I wanted to give something, I couldn't. Because my money would tell me, you don't have enough to give right now. And something changed in my heart because I realized, huh, is this the reason why Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money? Is it possible that money can master me? That I can actually still be in church and say I'm a believer and say Jesus is my Lord and say I follow him and still have a master higher than Jesus when times to make a decision about money come? Oh. You know what I do? I still do it to this day because this is one of them that's deep in me and I know my heart resets to it every day. Every time I get my paycheck, I come here. And when it's time to give, I open the PushPay app, I press a button, and I look at it and I say, I can automate this, but honestly, I'm going to do it this way so that I am reminded every time I am choosing to not let money master me. God is my master, and money is a tool. And I realign my heart. Because my heart likes to make things idols. My heart wants to make things God. You know, we were singing a song, I Surrender. I thought it was an appropriate song to sing. And I gave my life to God in a youth camp. I'm so glad the churches like Bethel do youth camps. And we have a youth camp coming up. If you're a young person in the house today, please join us for that youth camp. And my daughter's going to be joining a youth camp. We're so excited. When I was 15 years old, my mom forced me to go to this youth camp. I had no idea what it was going to be about, nor had I any intention of going. Okay, can I just be frank? I hated it. I hated the idea that I was going to go to this camp. The camp was called Absolute Surrender. <laughs> Should have figured things out. Just, just a little bit of a clue there of what was going to be happening. I walked into the camp kicking and screaming, left the camp completely safe. So glad I heard about Jesus. So glad. The guy leading our small group in the camp was doing the devotions, and they were doing the devotions about Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, about the parable, uh, the kingdom of God is like um, a man who found treasure in a field. Some of you know this. Man found treasure in the field. It wasn't his field. He found the treasure, so what he did was he decided to hide the treasure again, and then he left, and he sold everything that he had, and then he bought the field. And they were talking about that, and I had already just given my life to God two days before, 
And we were talking about that. And you know what? The weirdest thing happened. I'm going to be, I have to explain why this happened and why this is such a big deal. Okay? Some of you are going to think this is absolutely trivial, what is going on. Okay, but humor me. When he was saying that, we were talking about application, about things in our life that, you know, that we were to give up for the sake of having more of God and more of his kingdom. Nobody brought it up, but in my heart, I could feel, and later on I found out this is the way the Holy Spirit works. Some of you know this, you're in church and you hear something, man, the pastor's speaking to me, and you know exactly what he's speaking of, even though he wasn't talking about that, but you're absolutely sure the pastor's talking to me about this. I didn't understand it at the time, and I now know that's the Holy Spirit, but at the time, my comic book collection came from just deep in my heart to the sun and became top of mind. And I'm in the group and I'm staring at them. I go, nobody saw my comics at all. But I, could, I couldn't help but feel something float to the surface of my thoughts, float to the top of my heart and say, like, your comics, your comics. You see, I was an avid, probably avid's too, too weak a word, comic book collector. I would buy plastic bags that would make sure that the comics would stay the same color of which it was originally published. I would buy the kind of cardboard that you would put in there so that years later, it's acid-free and it will keep it in its original pristine place so that one day in the future, X-Men number one will make me millions. Okay? It's, it's that kind of thinking. Okay? But you don't understand because we only had oh so much money. And so whenever I get my allowance, instead of eating my meals in school and buying myself food, I would go ahead and not eat so that I could keep that money so by the end of the week, I could have enough money to buy myself one comic book. And I would do that every week. And whenever life got tough and things got stressful, and this is just going to be completely exposing myself as a nerd here, but what's going to happen is when life got, life got really tough, I would hide myself in my room and open my comic books. And I would read. I'd read the stories of these people with powers who had life tough. And it was never okay. They had powers and it was still not okay. And I, and I would console myself. Yeah, you guys know what I'm going through. You know what it's like. I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't have the words for it that I do today. But my comics were my idols. They made me feel good. They made me feel secure. They made me feel okay. They helped me through tough times. And here I was in the camp, and nobody was talking about comics. You know, I didn't have to bring it up. So I raised my hand. What about comic books? Is God against comic books? And the small group leader was surprised. What do you mean? I don't know. I just feel like God wants me to get rid of my comic books. God is not against comic books. Okay? He was against idols. And he goes, I don't know. What about comic books? I don't know. I just feel like God wants me to get rid of my comic books. Well, I didn't say that, did I? He was like imagining my parents getting mad at him. They're like, why did you tell my kids to get rid of their comic books? You know, so. No, I was like, no, I think I need to get rid of my comic books. It sounds trivial, but that day I resolved. I don't know why, but God, I will get rid of my comic books. And you know, I was kind of sadistic, so what I did was I went home, got my box, brought out every single one of the co my comic books, and I kind of wrote down how much I knew it was going to be worth. 
and I knew exactly how much it was. And then I got a big can, went to my backyard, lit a fire. And one by one I go, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I was so tempted to keep one of them. My brother came home. He was so mad. What did you do? You could have just given it to me. <laughs> and I just knew if I sold it, if I gave it to somebody else, I would be compromising on what God clearly told me to do. And I'm not telling you to go home if you have a comic collection right now and burn it. That's not what the message is. Some of you are taking that home. That's not the message. But there was something in my heart that took God's place. And I went to it when I needed it. God was supposed to be my source of security, but my comics were my source of security. God was supposed to be my source of comfort, but my comics was my source of comfort. And I knew if I was serious about this Jesus, one of them had to go. And I took a chance on Jesus. I'm glad I did. Some of you here took a chance on Jesus. Aren't you glad you did? Yeah. Is your heart full of idols? Is it possible there are pseudo-saviors in your life? I'm married for 16 years. I love my wife. She's my best friend. There's not a single thing I would do on this earth that I would love. Like, I'd be so excited to do where she's not part of it. I want her to be a part of it. But you know what? I realize she, a good thing, a good marriage is a good thing, right? He who finds a wife finds what is good. I mean, I'm, I found a great wife. God has blessed me. But she's not my savior. Kids, I have four girls. I'm so glad they took after their mom. God is good to me. But how if you know your children could be your savior? Some of the moms here, if your kid starts going a different path than the one you hope, your life comes tumbling down. Why? Because your identity was propped on how good they become. Could they be saviors that tell you who you are and prove your value? They're your way of telling the world you matter. Is our hearts is it possible our hearts could be full of idols? You see, it was John Calvin who said that our hearts are perpetual idol factories. Every single day, our heart is looking for something to take the place of God, which is probably why the Bible tells us God's mercies are new for us every morning. Because every morning when our heart defaults back to creating idols, we can go to God and say, God, thank you for your mercy to help me. Take my hands off this idol and back to looking at you. Oh, which is probably why we go back to that verse in verse 5. He invites us, come, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What if you don't? Well, at least we see here what happens because in, Jude, in Judah's time, they didn't listen. And so in verse 9, Here's the judgment. Here's the consequence of not dealing with your idols. Man is humbled. Each one is brought low. 
God, don't forgive them. Instead, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Our kids just studied the idea of awesome God. The word awesome translates two ways. Terrifying and awe-inspiring. When you use the word awe, it means I'm, he's so frighteningly amazing. He's, I'm terrified of him. And he's, he's so wonderfully beautiful. I can't help but be drawn to him. When we say our God is an awesome God, I want you to understand this awesome God we replace with money, with relationships, with comic books. We, relish, we, re, we replace it with things, with people, with constructs that do not save. The judgment us, they will be brought low. You see, the promise is, and this is going to be true, one thing I know is true. The Lord alone will be exalted on that judgment day. The Lord alone. And I have to deal with that every time one of my idols rise up and tells me it's more important in my life than God. And I actively fight for that throne in my heart to only be God's. You know, in the case of Isaiah, and I'm wrapping up here, Judah didn't listen. They ended up getting exiled. They were judged for their sin of idolatry. They came back and they finally learned their lesson. And they said, never again. We will never do that again. And they looked forward to the day that Isaiah promised where somebody in Isaiah 11, it says, somebody from the stump of Jesse, a branch will come forth that will come and rule. They were looking for a future king who was going to come and reign. And they said, we gave up all our idols. We're now waiting for the promised righteous king, the Messiah, who will finally bring us to the top, and we will rule over all, and peace will finally come on all, all the earth. 700 years they waited. 700 years later, a man shows up, Jesus of Nazareth, who starts healing the sick, who starts casting out demons, who starts speaking in such a way where it rattles the social order of the time. Is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one who will free us from Roman rule? It's what they did. Which is why when we celebrate Palm Sunday, you know what they did? We celebrate Palm Sunday. What happened was Jesus was riding on a donkey and entered Jerusalem. They said, finally, he's going to come and get rid of the Romans. And so they raised palm branches and laid down their coats. And you know what they shouted? They shouted, Hosanna! Hosanna to the son of David, the promised thump from Jesse. Hosanna! Hosanna! Now, we sing that in church now, so it's kind of lost its meaning. We think it just means hallelujah and praise God. The word Hosanna literally translates to liberate us, save us, free us from our oppressors. And what they did was they shouted and celebrated this Messiah that they think he could be the one. And so Jesus comes down and they're saying, finally, here we go. The, revolutionary, the revolution is about to start. He will finally get rid of Rome. And they're watching him. And instead of turning right where the Roman headquarters was, he turns left. 
where the temple was. And instead of getting rid of the Roman rule, he creates a whip of thorns and then he cleans the temple. He cleaned the house. And all of a sudden, every righteous Jew who believed for the righteous king to come was offended by this Jesus. Sure, he had great teaching. Sure, he healed the sick. But he's not our Messiah. He keeps pointing back at us. That's the problem. He quotes Isaiah, which is on our wall. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So you know what happens? They decide to kill him. They arrest him. And they bring him to Pilate. And Pilate knows this Jesus is innocent of their crimes that they're saying. I will let him go. And they go, no, 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 no. Well, it's my custom to release one of you back to you. Who do you want me to release? You know who they asked for? We know this. Barabbas. You know what I didn't know? History calls him Jesus Barabbas. His name. You know how it's Simon Peter? His name was Jesus Barabbas. They picked a revolutionary Jesus over a rabbi Jesus. And when Pilate raised him up, he ended up on the cross. They asked to be written on the top of the cross, this is the king of the Jews. And they said, not our king. I think of that. Because the judgment they said, the promise was, on that day, the Lord alone will be exalted. I think of myself and I think, how do I get rid of idols in my heart? I get rid of idols in my heart when I realize God is more worth it than whatever this thing is. Israel chose the wrong Jesus at the time. What about us? Which Jesus do we choose? The one we make for ourselves? The one we want? The one who does not make a mess? Does not point back to us and ask us to make changes in our hearts, but instead corrects the world around us because they need correcting? Which Jesus are you willing to follow? Because I think the Jesus that wants to clean our hearts is the real Jesus. As we end today, I think of that promise that the Lord alone will be exalted. And in Philippians chapter 2, it says that this Jesus did not consider equality with God to be something to be grasped, but instead, he made himself low. I'm supposed to be the one that's humbled and made low because I'm sinful, right? But he made himself low. He was humiliated so I could be exalted. Huh? That's the Jesus I serve. The Jesus who gave his all when I could give nothing. So that I could have his everything. And the promise is, because of what he did on the cross, God has brought him up to the highest place. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He is 
Lord. If you understand this, Jesus, no idol in your heart will be able to keep its place. This Jesus is too big, too good, too powerful, too true. This Jesus. Not just the Jesus you want, the Jesus you need. Can we bow our heads and pray? Lord, it's so easy to listen to a word like this and point to other people and point out their idols because it's easy for us to see. We know what they're living for. We know what they're doing. It's harder for us to let your word be a mirror so we can see ourselves. But that's exactly what I asked today. If you're here and you know God is highlighting something in your heart, that's his invitation. Come, let us walk in the light of our Lord. If you're here and every head is bowed, but if you know, God, I sense your spotlight. I am exposing something in my heart that you're trying to displace. That's you. You just take a moment, lift up your hand. Not for me, it's for you. For the Holy Spirit. You're saying, I hear you, God. And I surrender. Just take a moment. That's you. Just lift up your hand. Just raise it. Raise it like you're giving up. Raise it, raise it like you're surrendering. Raise it like you realize finally who your true Savior can be. Great. Lord, every hand is raised today. Show them that you are a treasure worth giving everything else up for. displace the idols in our hearts. May you grow so big in our hearts that no idol can keep its place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.